for every one of you being here. I know some of you undoubtedly had a difficult week. Thanks for being here as we seek to worship Jesus this morning. And I want you to take your Bible and find Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. Jesus frequently presented the gospel of grace as an invitation. He invites people to be saved to live life on a higher plane, and to enjoy the blessings of salvation in the here and now. And today, the invitation is to love your enemies. Now, that command may seem impossible, but as I've repeated a few times in this series, Stephen Olford accurately said, there's no demand made on your life that is not a demand made on the risen Christ who lives inside of you. Having said that, this command can be very difficult difficult based on what some of you have experienced. But Christians are to live differently from the world. And forgiveness is one of the chief ways to live on a higher Christian plane and enjoy the blessings of salvation in the here and now. You only begin to enjoy life when you seek to live life according to God's word. So let's enter into this invitation to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 39. Jesus said, and we're breaking into the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous." Just two principles I want you to see this morning. The first one is the principle of no resistance. Now, in these verses, we see commands that may seem implausible or even impossible. Verse 39, do not resist an evil person. What, so if, if someone wants to sue me, I'm just supposed to let him bankrupt me? Verse 39 again, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So I'm just supposed to let someone beat me? How do we understand these verses? Jesus said earlier in this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We believe that part of the Sermon on the Mount. So why would we not believe verse 39? The truth is, it's not as simple as that. Have you ever been asked by an unbeliever, do you believe the Bible literally? Now, I haven't been asked that in some time, but um, I have before several times, and it's usually in a, in a negative way, I mean, an accusatorial way. Do you believe the Bible literally? How would you answer that question coming from an unbeliever? Do you believe the Bible literally? And here's the answer. It depends. Should we read the Bible literally? Well, oftentimes, yes. The Bible means what it says, but a literal reading of the Bible from start to finish fails to recognize literary forms. It doesn't recognize things like metaphors and 
similes and hyperbole. The type of literature you're reading makes a difference. Is it Hebrew narrative? Is it psalmic poetry? Is it just wisdom literature? Is it epistolic literature? In other words, the epistles. It all plays in how we understand God's word. So you wouldn't read parts of the Sermon on the Mount the way you would read all of Genesis. Genesis is Hebrew narrative. It is historically and factually accurate. Read Genesis literally. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount literally, you will physically die by self-dismemberment. Jesus said, if you lust after someone, not your spouse, and every person in here has done that, he says, cut out your right eye and cut off your right hand because that's better than going to hell. And you can cut out your eye and cut off your hand, and that won't solve your lust problem, and it won't save you from hell. You'll just bleed out. In the case of the Sermon on the Mount, much of it is hyperbole. Now, that doesn't negate its meaning. Hyperbole is a teaching tool that uses exaggeration to create a strong impression. So look again at verse 39. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. There's an old, I don't know if any of you remember this, but there's an old VeggieTale video on this that has a disastrous take on that verse. There's a bully on the playground that threatens the other vegetables. So the father says to the, he says, you may have to, quote, get pounded. In other words, just take the beating because that's what Jesus taught, turn the other cheek. So they all go back to the playground and they tell the bully to beat them all up and the bully backs down because he can't beat them all up at the same time and it proves God's word is true. That's a terrible take. This doesn't mean that if someone beats you, you passively take it. If so, Jesus violated his own teaching. He was struck by an officer of the high priest. He did not turn his cheek for more. He said, if I have spoken wrongly, testify the wrong. But if rightly, why did you strike me? In Acts chapter 22, Paul was wrongly arrested, beaten, and about to be scourged by a Roman centurion. He did not passively take it. When they stretched him out, he said, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is Roman and uncondemned? As a Roman citizen, he objected that he'd been deprived of due process of law, so they released him. Jesus is not teaching a weak complacency that allows evil to go unchecked and you to be victimized. Being slapped in the face in Jewish culture was a deep insult. If a right-handed person slapped you on the right cheek, it was a backhand. And according to rabbinic law, that was a double shame. For example, the Sanhedrin sometimes desynagogued people. Now, that was a severe punishment. You couldn't gather to worship. It had financial and social implications. And sometimes they would flog the person. And after 39 lashes, the synagogue official would backhand the victim in the face as the great and final insult. So turning the other cheek means to ignore personal insults. You don't have to respond. You can let it roll right off your shoulders. Don't get bent out of shape. If someone insults you or someone disses you or they disdainfully sniff at you, just smile and move on. It doesn't change your standing before Jesus. Yet because this verse has been so misunderstood, I want to establish a few things very clearly that it does not mean. And I've heard these things before. Number one, top of the list, do not allow yourself to be abused. If you're a victim of domestic abuse, 
call the police and press charges every time without fail. Now, I recognize that if you're in that kind of a situation, it's scary, but the abuser will not stop until they're forced to stop. Romans 13 says the government exists to bring wrath on the one who is evil. Do not allow an abusive person to injure you or others around you. Number two, you don't allow your leadership to be affected. I mean, think about this at work. Many of you are leaders. If you're a leader, you're going to be slandered. That's part of the territory. You have to decide. If you hear something about you, is it a personal insult? If so, ignore it. If it's going to affect your leadership, the people you lead are going to be adversely affected. Allowing that to continue is unloving. You'll have to respond. Number three, don't be silent in the face of evil. The last thing an evildoer needs in light of the fact that they will be accountable for their evil someday, the last thing they need is your silence or worse, your affirmation. So if you love that person, tell them, look, he who confesses and forsakes his sins finds mercy. He who hides his sins will not prosper. Number four, don't fail to defend others. For example, if Someone is bearing false witness, and you know it's false witness. Or someone is physically attacking someone, you do what you can to stop it. The thinking behind verse 42 is similar. I want you to look at that. It says, give to him who asks of you, and do not borrow, excuse me, do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, if you take this literally, sweet. We're going to have an invitation you can come forward and bring me your cash, credit cards, signed over CDs, username and password to 401ks. I have some blank quick claim deeds in here, and somebody surely here is a notary, so you can sign your property over to me. That's not what this verse means, nor does it mean to give to an irresponsible person or cause. It does mean that a Christian is to be known for radical, unusual financial generosity that a Christian freely gives, trusting that Jesus will meet our needs in the future. Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, you don't conduct your finances like the world does. That's not the way kingdom people live. Live generously because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus had all the wealth of the universe, yet he stepped into our world, giving all away so that we could have eternal life. Now, today is Compassion International Sunday, so around this building are 52 kids that you have a chance to sponsor. If you're not familiar with Compassion International, they are a wonderful organization. They, are, uh, they, they have great financial integrity, and they provide kids with education, food, clothing, and of course, the gospel, and they disciple these kids. So we hope that many of you will seize this opportunity to give freely to change a child's life and their eternal destiny. Now, as I said in the welcome, many of you still sponsor kids from our first Compassion International Sunday, which was five years ago. Tara and I still sponsor too. So if that's something you can't do, uh, or you already sponsor a kid and it's just something that doesn't work for your finances, I hope you'll still stay after church Take a look at these packets. Pray for some of those kids as you look at them. And as Nathan said, we hope to meet some of these kids someday on a Vision 316 mission trip. That would be amazing. 
And I want to take the opportunity to say this. You are an incredibly generous, gracious, and giving church. I was talking with some pastors about this church Friday night. I'm very proud of you. Very proud of you. Your, your open-handedness. That's the way you've always been, and that's the way Jesus is. So we want to relentlessly give like Jesus. And by, by the way, at the end of this sermon, we'll give you instructions on how to sponsor these kids. But I just want to thank you for your consistent generosity. Now, regarding this verse, let me give you an example of how I know this verse was fleshed out one time. These situations are difficult. I have a friend who had an employee who back around 1996 or so stole about $20,000 to the best of my memory. He stole $20,000 of merchandise from a lumberyard this guy owned, a guy in his own church. He had evidence. He had him dead to rights. He could have taken that information to the prosecutor, but he chose not to do that. He chose not to even fire him. He strongly suggested the man fire another, find another job, which he did, but he never sought reimbursement. He wouldn't have been wrong to do that. He wasn't wealthy by any standards. But the perpetrator had three little kids, very little materially. He knew the wife and children would suffer, so he chose what? He chose, in this case, radical generosity. By the way, mercy too, but radical generosity. Even though it wasn't asked of him, it was taken from him. But here's why a decision like that is so hard. I helped him walk through this decision, and it was a greater struggle than I could have imagined because we thought, well, he's going to be held accountable by God for this. Is it right to be silent? And we didn't say anything to him. And if I had that one to do over again, I would definitely confront him because he'll be accountable for all of eternity. But the other thought we had at the time was this. Well, by telling him just to move on, you're, are you just dumping the problem on someone else? That violates the command to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, will he just go and do the same thing to another employer? I hope he didn't do that because he went to work for the Missouri Department of Corrections. But every situation requires wisdom. Seek wisdom. Pray for wisdom. Wisdom will be the theme of our prayer meeting tonight. Whenever you read God's word, we need wisdom on how to apply it. So the first principle of this that we see is no resistance, and the second one is no revenge. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's not hard to understand, but that would have been very surprising to his hearers. Notice that it says, you have heard that it was said. So I want you to take your Bible, if you would, and find Leviticus 19.18 for a moment. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, because there you'll find out what they heard. Over the years, rabbinic interpretations had steadily perverted Leviticus 19.18, and then the Pharisees amplified that perversion. There was an omission, an addition, and a redefinition of this verse to make it palatable to them. First, the omission. Look at the verse, Leviticus 19.18. It says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. They had a problem with that verse. 
If they left the verse as is, neighbor would include Gentiles and Samaritans. They hated Gentiles and Samaritans. They dehumanized them as a people. Anytime you dehumanize a people group, you're doing the work of the devil. Unborn people have been dehumanized in this country since 1973, and now Kansas is a destination state for people to come and do away with the life of a precious baby. Sinful human nature does not want to love other people. It wants to hate. It wants to destroy. It wants to kill. It comes to us naturally. We are more like the devil than we'd like to admit. So part of the Jews' solution then was to omit the words, as yourself. You shall love your neighbor, I am the Lord. Now that helped, but that didn't get them where they wanted to be. So there, there, was, there, excuse me, there was the addition. Rabbis added the part, you shall hate your enemy. God's word never said that. Just a verse earlier, Leviticus 19.17, take a look. It says, you shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You shall surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. But they still had a problem. And this is where we get to the redefinition. They had to change the meaning of the word neighbor because neighbor still included Samaritans and Gentiles. So look again at verse 18. It says, you shall not bear any grudge against the sons of your people. There was their out. They said sons of your people only referred to Jews. Therefore, the word neighbor couldn't apply to Samaritans and Gentiles. Shazam, they've got to figure it out. They can hate their neighbor. The Pharisees actually had a saying, if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out, for it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of a neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. And this kind of hate became embedded in Jewish culture then, so much so that in Luke chapter 10, a lawyer went to Jesus and wanted to know how to have eternal life. Knowing his heart, Jesus treated that lawyer like he did the rich young ruler. He said, obey the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God, love your neighbor as yourself. And the Bible says the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said, of course this was philosophical, he said, well, who is my neighbor? He thought he had Jesus, and Jesus responded with the parable of the good Samaritan. I mean, he devastated him with that answer. And in that parable, a Jew is beaten by robbers, a Jewish priest, and a Levite pass by and do nothing. A Samaritan sees the Jew, the man who was supposed to be his enemy, but instead he tended to his injuries and paid for his convalescence at a local inn. So the Pharisees had manipulated God's word to the point they could hate other people and have a clear conscience. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But look at verse 44. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let's consider loving your enemies. Now, it's not hard to have enemies. A knight and his men 
fought a long, hard battle, and at end's day, they returned to their castle. And the king said, How are we faring, O mighty warrior? And the knight said, Your highness, victory is ours. We have robbed and pillaged all day. We burned several towns to the ground belonging to your vile enemies in the west. And the king said, The west? I don't have any enemies in the west. And the knight said, Well, you do now. G.K. Chesterton said that the Bible tells us to love our neighbor and our enemies because oftentimes they're the same person. So here's one of the first principles of this. Love is not a feeling. Love is a sanctified motivation. Love does not refer to your emotions. It's speaking in the context of your will. Love doesn't tell me what to do. It does tell me to do what is best for my enemy. It gives me the right motivation to bless my enemy even when I want to take revenge. But today, there's a lot of modern-day criticisms of Christianity that you didn't hear in the past. And one of the criticisms is simply this. What about the Old Testament when the Jews entered Canaan? The Canaanites were their enemies. God told them to kill every single person. There were seven people groups in Canaan. Deuteronomy 7.2, God told Israel, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. In Deuteronomy 17, he told them to wipe out the memory of one of their enemies, the Amalekites. And then as you advance in the Bible, you get to the Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms. Those are Psalms where the psalmist wishes ill to happen bad things to happen to their enemies, even to the point of death. So how are we to reconcile all that with Jesus' command to love our enemies? Well, when it comes to the people in Canaan, God was bringing judgment on them. They were a people so immersed in sin, so far gone, that God knew every man, woman, and child was beyond redemption. There was no hope. It's no different than when God destroyed most of the world through a flood in the days of Noah. In this case, he brought death to the Canaanites through his chosen people. That does not give any people group today any license to wage war against another. But whether one likes it or not, God is sovereign and that was his command to those people in that era of history. You say, well, that's not fair. Someday, a person and people can cross God's deadline. The Canaanites were never ending in their worship of false gods. They practiced child sacrifice. They threw their firstborn in the fire. They were sexually immoral, relentlessly. They were an example of people who abandoned all fear of God himself. And when you see a culture that kills the weakest members of society, when God is mocked and scorned and ridiculed, when sexual immorality is exalted, the point comes when God's wrath is kindled. Now, the imprecatory Psalms are a little different. They might be about defending God's honor or defending God's people during persecution or just the raw emotion of a human being seeing grave injustice. 
Just because it's written in Scripture doesn't mean God says, go and do thou likewise. Some Bible verses are prescriptive. In other words, go and do. But many Bible verses are just descriptive. In other words, here's what happened. Yet there's another modern-day objection to this, uh, loving our enemies. Jesus pronounced seven woes on the Pharisees. And his summary statement was, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And it said, well, that's not loving your enemy. But with those words, Jesus was loving his enemies. In pronouncing those seven woes, one of the things he's doing, he's trying to awaken them to their sin. It's a last-ditch effort to shock them out of their prideful religiosity that made them think they were better than others around them and that by keeping their rules they were going to go to heaven when in fact it was taking them to hell. Now it does need to be said that some enemies are extremely toxic to our lives. They've done you wrong. They're unrepentant for their past. This verse does not mean that you let them back in your life to abuse you again. It does mean you do not take revenge. I served on a staff in a different church years ago with a son, uh, excuse me, with a man whose son was murdered. And the police quickly made the arrest. It was a brutal, brutal murder. The prosecutor, I can't believe he did this, the prosecutor called my friend and his wife, and he said, this is first-degree murder. The death penalty applies. I'll leave it up to you. Do you want me to pursue the death penalty? Now, they had the opportunity for justice. They could have said, well, of course he deserves death. In Romans chapter 13, says that government is to deal with an evildoer. But they did not take vengeance on their enemy. They chose mercy and that murderer received a life sentence. He is in the Missouri State Penitentiary now. And they hope that God will grant him repentance that leads to eternal life. So as much as others might try to knock us off this command, it doesn't change. Jesus tells us to love our enemies because that's what the Father does. And when we love our enemies, we're like him. Look at verse 45. Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There are wicked people all over the world who hate God. Yet they're blessed today by God's sunshine and rain and wealth and health. And look again at verse 45. In the Bible, the righteous are generally people who are saved and the unrighteous are generally people who are unsaved. But saved people have no righteousness in and of themselves, absolutely none. The only way we can be called righteous is because Jesus loved us and did not take revenge against us when we were his enemies. The Bible's explicit about this. Romans 5.10, we were enemies of God. Had he treated us? The way we often have treated our enemies, we would all be in hell. Instead, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
He loved us by going to the cross. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you're a Christian, as hard as this might be to believe, God looks at you as if you were Jesus. That's a true statement, believe it or not. Through Jesus' blood, we are seen as sinless. But that's not what we deserve. If we can keep that in mind, we can love our enemies. By the way, that verse does not mean God is a universalist, that everyone ends up in heaven. In love, remember, love is a motivation for an action. In love, God sent his son to take God's wrath for sinners. Anyone who does not believe that is rejecting God's love. And what else can be done for someone who rejects the love of God? Now, hopefully some of this answers some of the modern objections that might come from this command. But the bottom line is we don't seek revenge against our enemies. If there was ever a man who had reason to exact revenge other than Jesus, it was Joseph of the Old Testament. Joseph went to his own and his own received him not. He went to his brothers, they attacked him, and then they sold him into slavery. Meanwhile, they told his father he was killed by wild animals. Joseph ended up in the God-forsaken land of Egypt. He was a slave in the house of a high-ranking official named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. He was thrown into prison. But through God's providence, he was not only exonerated, he was exalted to the right hand of the de facto world ruler who at the time was Pharaoh. Like Jesus, Joseph was given a new name, a name above all names, that at his new name, the name of Zaphnath Panea, every knee should bow, and he was given a Gentile bride. All of his life points us to Jesus. So Joseph is now at the right hand of the de facto world ruler. He has the authority of Pharaoh, and his brothers come crawling to him, needing food. They were in the middle of a famine. They don't have any idea he is their brother. They don't have any idea he's alive, nor do they care. Joseph could have incinerated them and never given it a second thought. He could have enslaved them. He could have tortured them for revenge. Instead, and you can read this in the book of Genesis, he forgave them. He wept over them. He gave them food. He gave them money. Man, he paid for moving vans so the family could come and live with him. Love is a motivation for an action. Jesus doesn't say, get all gooey-gooey about your enemies. It's a motivation to act in their best interest and not take revenge. This morning, I want you to do something. Get a mental picture. See this in your mind's eye. Get a mental picture of Jesus' love for you as he's dying on the cross. See this. Look at the gruesome sight of soldiers driving nails through his hands and his feet driving them through his flesh into a cross of roughly hewn wood. Imagine the pain. Imagine the terror. What did Jesus say when they did that? No resistance, no revenge. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that same Lord Jesus 
can supernaturally put in you a heart of extraordinary forgiveness. So there's loving your enemies, and then there's praying for your enemies. Verse 42, pray for those who persecute you. These are people who actively pursue you with repeated attacks. They won't get off your back. They never will. The context of the following verses indicate that those persecutors are lost. So you can pray for them with an understanding of what lies ahead for them. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned to death. And as those stones rained down on him, his last words on this earth were, Father, do not hold this sin against them. So like Stephen, like Jesus, pray that God would not hold the persecution against them. Because if you continue to think about their eternal state, your heart will soften. I don't want to be formulaic about this, but there's a practice that has always been helpful to me. And I've mentioned this before, so some of you may have heard this before. Look, whenever you pray... Pray the truth because God knows what you're thinking. So don't try to be clever like he doesn't know. So go, and this is what I do sometimes. Lord, you know, I know that you know, I hate that person. And don't dodge that word. Be honest with yourself. Well, Lord, I just don't really care for that person. It's like, give me a break. Get honest. Lord, you know, I hate that person. They brought this pain into my life. They're... My reputation, maybe, my family, they won't get off my back. They continue to treat me poorly for no reason. Lord, first of all, I pray you would forgive me for my hate. Second, if there's any truth in anything they're saying, would you reveal that blind spot to me? But then, in obedience to your word, Lord, I pray for this person. I pray you would bless them physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, maritally, in every aspect of their life. I pray that you would bless them. And Lord, I know that you know I don't mean a word of that. And really, I'm not trying to be funny. It's funny, okay to laugh, but I'm really, I'm, this, is, this is what I do. I know that you know I don't mean a word of that, but I want to obey your word. So I'm going to pray for them. And you do that day by day. You continue to pray that way. Eventually, God begins to drain that hurt and your hate from your heart. By the way, forgiveness is never perfect, so don't be too hard on yourself when things come back. But you pray that way. It won't change your circumstances, but God will honor that obedience by changing your heart. Look at verse 45 again and see what happens when you love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You pray for your enemies. It's evidence of your salvation. And verse 45 says he causes the sun to rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He blesses the saved and the unsaved, so why shouldn't we? Jesus died for your sins a couple thousand years before you were born. He blessed us as evil and unrighteous people, and the reason is not left to guesswork. For God so loved, there's the motivation, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Friend, if you've never been saved this morning, don't look at this gift of salvation and shrug it off. Believe in him. And belief is not mental assent. It is the total person. Recognize that you're a sinner, that you're an enemy of God, but he's offering you mercy. He's offering you new life in Christ. 
So if you sense Jesus drawing you to himself, don't put it off. Talk to one of us afterward. Talk to someone here. You can fill out that QR code. We'll scan it. We'll, we'll get back to you tomorrow if we possibly can. But don't put it off. And we want to invite you to become a member of this church, if you've been thinking about that, to publicly unite with us in our cause to reach Leavenworth County for the gospel. We need you. We need people like you to do that.